Well, welcome back to Romans once again. The last couple of weeks, we've seen that the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans by Paul, is actually a smackdown. Uh, what Paul's doing is smacking down some contesting, contesting leaders, Jewish leaders, who have a different gospel. He, he, he contests these guys all through his letters. In Galatians, which is a companion letter to Romans in, in, in its uh, content, in Galatians he actually says these guys have a different good news, a different gospel. So he, we saw the smackdown, and we met the, the guys who they're contesting over, which is the Roman believers. These Roman believers are pretty amazing people. They're mainly Gentiles. Their faith is being spoken of throughout the whole world. And Paul would know because he'd been throughout the whole world. Rome, of course, is a special place because it is the center of the world at that time. So if Paul has his gospel, which is his whole mission in life, is to spread this gospel... If he has this gospel undermined in the center of the world, it's going to be undermined everywhere. Which is why he writes this letter as the only letter he writes to people he didn't already know. Most of his letters, he not only knows them, he knows them very intimately. But in this case, he doesn't know them, but he's got to smack down these guys that are undermining his gospel in the center of the world. And he's writing to these predominantly Gentile believers whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Last week, we met the guys who he's contesting with in Romans chapter 2, verse 17. And he says, Indeed, you are called a Jew. Now, when he introduced this whole passage, he introduced it in two one with, therefore you're inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. And this is how legalism works. It comes in and it condemns. That's step one. You're condemned. Why are you condemned? You don't do these things. How can I get out from under that condemnation? Do these things. And give me your money. Do these things and put me on, put yourself under my control. That's the way it always works. It always works with judgment and condemnation. We're going to find out here that Romans says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's going to, he's going to completely eliminate the whole basis of legalism. And then we find out in 17 that this old man particularly who he has in mind are these Jewish contestants. These guys with a different gospel. These guys who are contesting Paul's authority. Don't listen to Paul. Listen to us. Here's what they say of themselves. They rest on the law. They make their boast in God. They say they know His will. They say they approve the things that are excellent. Why? They're instructed out of the law. Verse 19. You are confident you yourself are a guide to the blind. A light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth. Where? In the law. 
You therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? And then he goes on to demonstrate conclusively that smackdown number one is you don't follow your own rules. He later will say, join the club. Nobody can follow all those rules. In fact, he says in verse 24 that his contestants, these guys he's smacking down, have blasphemed the name of God among the Gentiles because they preach one thing and do another. Blasphemeo. These guys are condemners and they're blasphemers. So they blaspheme the name of God among the Gentiles first and then they blasphemed Paul second. And we saw the slander in chapter 3, verse 8. Why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm we say. Slanderously, here, blasphemeo. They blasphemed the name of God among the Gentiles, and then they blasphemed my gospel. How did they blaspheme it? They said that I'm preaching you ought to do evil. And when you do, good may come. And we saw last week that what these contestants don't like is Paul teaching that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Because, in fact, Paul is saying the law can't make you righteous. Only God can make you righteous by His grace. They don't like that notion. So, today, what we're going to do is go to Smackdown Part 2. Smackdown Part 1 was you can't follow your own stuff. Smackdown Part 2 is guess what the law says? It agrees with me. So let's go to Chapter 4. And let's look at Smackdown Part 2. Now, before we go to Chapter 4, I just want to give you some encouragement. Is this going to be a little tough sledding today? And let me just read to you 2 Peter 3.16 real quick, where Peter says, Our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand. So if the Apostle Peter thought that Paul's stuff was hard to understand, you're in good company if you struggle with this. It's okay. Just hang in there. This is not going to be easy today. Chapter 4, Smackdown Part 2. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? So now if he's contesting with these Jewish guys who say, not Paul's authority, our authority. What are they appealing to? The law. Who are the great heroes in the law? Moses, Abraham, David. Well, so what Paul's going to do is systematically go through and demonstrate that all three of those guys agree with Paul, not them. He's going to start with Abraham. So what shall we say Abraham our father found according to the flesh in his body? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God 
and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Okay, so if I come and I say, uh, I would like to work for you for a week, Joe, uh, how much would you pay me? And Joe says, I'll pay you $1,000 if you'll go out and do this job for me this week. I say, okay, awesome, thank you. And I go out and do the job, and I come back at the end of the week, and I say, Joe, uh, I'm ready for my payment now. And Joe says, I really like you. You're a really good guy. I'm going to give you $200 just out of the goodness of my heart just because I like you. What am I going to say? Well, thank you for that, but you owe me $1,000, right? Because I did a job for you, and you now owe me what you promised. That's That's how work operates. And Paul's point here is that before Abraham had done anything, God said, you're righteous. Just gave it to him. And who can say to God, you owe me? Who can say, I did what you asked? He made that conclusive point in chapter 2, didn't he? You're not even close to following all these rules. And he says in chapter 3, join the club. So am I saying I'm better than you? No. No one can do this. All have sinned and fought short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. That's why we all need the grace of God. Let's skip down to verse 9. He does David in here, but let's just uh, follow Abraham. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Now, if you follow Paul's writings, he's constantly got this contest going with these Jewish leaders. And their basic point, as we've, I think, conclusively shown here in Romans so far, is that You've got to follow the law in addition to believing in order to achieve righteousness. You've got to follow the law. And Paul's point, of course, is you can't follow the law. It doesn't work. That's not how you get righteousness. And he's going to coin a phrase here, the righteousness of faith, to contrast the righteousness of the law. And the shortcut, sort of the branded term for follow the law in order to achieve righteousness is centered around the notion of circumcision. You see this really uh, graphically in the book of Galatians, where circumcision is mentioned so many times. So, when when God said of Abraham, you are righteous just because I said so, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him righteousness, was he circumcised or was he uncircumcised? Verse 10, how was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Answer, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith. So circumcision didn't give him righteousness. Circumcision was a sign to show what had already happened. It didn't have anything to do with generating the righteousness in the first place. Let's actually look at this. Let's go to Genesis 15, verse 6. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. This notion of Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him of righteousness shows up as a central theme in three of of, uh, Paul's letters. 
it is a big deal. So chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, I'm your shield, your exceeding great reward. And he goes and he tells him in verse 5, he looks out, he says, brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now at this point in time, Abraham had exactly zero children. And he's an old man past childbearing age. And it says in verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So this is, this is what uh, Paul is quoting here. And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So the notion here is, I said it. Abraham says, oh wow, that's amazing. I believe it. And God says, that's good enough. You're righteous. And this was before any children were born before any circumcision had happened? And where's the law in in this particular case? Has it been written? It's 400 years in the future. We're not going to see the law for a long time. Before the law, before circumcision, Abraham believed God and it's accounted to him for righteousness. You You see Paul's point? If you want to actually see this play out, we can go to chapter 17, Genesis 17, 25. Yeah, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael. So this is now many years later, probably 20 years later. And all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So years later, not months, not days, years later he's circumcised after God had already said, you're righteous just because you believe me. We're going to see uh, Isaac get sacrificed even later. And that's going to come up here shortly. So, verse 11, And Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. Back to Romans chapter 4, verse 11. That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham had while still circumcised. So, who has Abraham as a father? Everyone who believed. He's our father too. That's cool, isn't it? Because of circumcision? No. We can have the faith of Abraham before circumcision just like Abraham did. And we can have the blessing of God of giving us righteous, His righteousness through faith before the law and without the law and apart from the law, just like Abraham did. Look at 3.21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. No difference what? Between Jews and Gentiles. There's no difference. The point of this verse is there's no difference. Who can keep the law? No one. Who is under sin? All of us. So, what do we need? We need the grace of God to impute righteousness to us through faith. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely. How much work is required? None. How much obligation can we demand from God? None. He gives it freely. How? By His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And when that happens, we have Abraham as our father. Without the law. Without circumcision. Without rules. And without condemnation. Without condemnation, legalistic systems cannot be imposed. Now, I think part of what's going on here is Paul is answering these guys, these Jewish guys who are contesting him using the book of James. The book of James was written about ten years prior. And it was written by the head of the Jerusalem church. And let's look at James and let's just see what James says in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, let's look at what James says about Abraham. James chapter 2, verse 21. Now, what did Paul say about Abraham being justified? Was he justified by his works? Paul says no. But look at James 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Sounds like just the opposite of what Paul said, doesn't it? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then, that a man is justified by works, and not by faith only. Can't you hear Paul's antagonists preaching this passage? Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Well, if that's true, then we just ought to sin all we want to. Every time we sin, it makes God more graceful. So just sin as much as possible. How ridiculous is that? Look at the book of James. Justification comes through works, not faith alone. Abraham was justified by works when he offered Isaac on the altar. You must offer your service to the law and be circumcised. And you must offer your service to the law and follow the commands of Moses. Just like James says. Who has the greater authority? The head of the Jerusalem church or this itinerant volunteer murderer who goes around bothering Gentiles? That kind of preaches pretty good, doesn't it? Well, what do we do with this? Is Abraham justified by faith or not? I'm sorry, by works? Is, Is Abraham justified by works or not? Well, we go back to our technical term problem again. Theologians tend to take terms and make them technical terms in order to build a theological system. The thing is, the theological system is man-made. It's not biblical. It might have usefulness, but it does not color the biblical words when you come to the biblical text. And just like almost every other word, justification requires context to understand what we're talking about. Have any of you ever justified yourself? Uh, Why do you have your hand in the cookie jar? 
I was just cleaning it out. <laughs> Saw a little speck of dust, thought I'd get it out of there. Well, then why do you have crumbs dribbling down the side of your mouth? I don't know how those got there. I think maybe my brother put them there. So in that particular contest, the boy is justifying himself before the parent. Right? We We use these words in context all the time. If you get called into court, what will you do? You will attempt to justify yourself. Because the word justification just means someone being evaluated or something being evaluated to see if it lines up with a standard. So if you under, to understand what justification we're talking about, we've got to understand who's being evaluated, who the evaluator is, and what standard we're talking about. Are we talking about the Midland Municipal City Code? Are we talking about the U.S. Constitution? What are we talking about? We're talking about the rules of your house? Well, I think we can make sense of this here because you see that in James, Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. How many years after the phrase, Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness, did that take place? Probably at least 20. Isaac was probably a grown man when this incident takes place, where he's sacrificed. So here's what Paul says. We go back to Romans chapter 4. He says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Was Abraham justified by works? Yes. Before whom? Everybody that saw him. All of humanity has looked back at Abraham and said... That's what real faith looks like. We call him the man of faith. And it's mainly because of this incident. And Hebrews lifts this up and elevates it as one of the most preeminent examples of faith in chapter 11, the hall of faith. And it says, Abraham sacrificed Isaac because he believed God's promise and considered that Isaac would be raised from the dead. So it was his belief in God's promise to the extent that he said, I believe that Isaac will be raised from the dead. That is this preeminent example of faith. And he justified himself by his example before men. But 20 years earlier, God had already said, you're righteous. This was just a fulfillment of what it was already pronounced when he did this act. And that's what Paul says. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And he does. He has got one of the greatest examples ever seen of faith. Before everybody but one. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. How much faith do you have to demonstrate before God, before God will say, that's enough demonstration. I will now impart this to you because of what you've done. No amount is sufficient. And this pattern will show up now all through Romans. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 4. He's going to to tell us in Romans 8, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, he's, he's saying what James is saying is not that these works create the righteousness. What these works do is they fulfill what already has taken place. See, when we come to faith in Christ, He says, I pronounce you righteous because of the shed blood of Christ and His death on the cross. I pronounce it in you. And then He comes in and fulfills us, I'm sorry, He fills us with the Spirit. And we're filled with the Spirit of God and now have the power to overcome sin. And then when we walk in that power, instead of walking in the flesh, we fulfilled that which has already taken place. And we manifest it to others. And we're justified before men. Uh, John 15 says it this way. Show your fruit before men that the Father might be glorified. Show the Spirit I gave to you to other people so they'll see me. So Abraham was justified before men by his works, but not before God. You've got to look at the time sequence. The pronouncement by faith came first. Now, I have to talk in James 2 about this passage that is right before Abraham being justified by works because this is one of the, I think, most misunderstood passages around. And this is not easy. Okay, so let me introduce this first by taking you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let me show you a poetic form. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one. So this is a poetic form. Someone will say, and then they say something, and then you say, Foolish one. So whatever it is that someone says is a foolish statement, and then you counter it. You get that? So if all you had was, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? What is the person's objection that's so foolish? Is it clear to you? Well, it's not to me. It just sounds like an observation, kind of. But I I can tell you definitively what the guy's saying by the smackdown. Foolish one... What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases to each seed His own body. Uh, his own body. So what, what is being, what, what is being uh, elevated here by Paul is resurrection. And the objector is saying, oh, how can that be? How, how, how can resurrection happen? Once you see what the answer is, the objection tends to be pretty clear. Okay? So, someone will say, oh, you foolish one. You get that? So, let's go back to James 2, and we have this poetic form in verse 18. But someone will say, and look at verse 20, but do you want to know, oh, foolish man? Now, I'm going to tell you this, this objection here by this foolish man it's not real clear to me exactly what point he's making on a standalone basis. But I think it becomes clear when you see what the smackdown is. 
Do you not want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And here's the big point that James is making. Look at verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So let's just say that Herman over here, his head turned blue, he started gagging, and he plopped over on the ground. Roger comes over, gives him artificial resuscitation. Nothing happens. We carry him out on gurney, not breathing. What, what would we say happened to Herman? He's dead. Okay, Herman's dead. Now let's say that on the way out, he's rolling along, and I said, that's not Herman's body. That, that is not Herman's body. I know Herman, Herman's body does leadership training. And all that body's doing is just laying on the gurney. That is not Herman's body. What would you say? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, you're a nut. Nobody looks like Herman. And that's Herman. See, look at his head. It may be blue, but that's Herman's head. Okay? Because his body's still there. What's changed about it? The spirit's not there anymore. Because the Spirit animates the body and makes it come alive. The Spirit's gone on to heaven. So now they're separated. And is the body still there? Does it still exist? It's just not alive anymore. What makes the body come alive? The Spirit. So as the body without the Spirit is dead, so faith without work. So in this, in this illustration, Herman is faith. Okay? You can have faith. You can have faith and it not do anything. There's a massive movement in our country to try to get that to be the requirement that you cannot take faith out of your place of worship and actually take it into the marketplace. There's people that want to pass laws to make that a requirement that you have to keep your faith separate. Well, you can't mix you can't mix faith and politics. If you believe something out of faith and actually go do something about it, then you might put that into action. We can't let that happen. Right? It's it's going on in our in our world. Well, there's nothing new about this. So now let's go and look at the objection, because the objection is going to be the two can exist just fine independent of one another, and it's not a problem. Okay, so here's what the foolish man says. Verse 18, someone will say, so I will now be the foolish man, and you all will be the, per- you, know, the you, the person I'm speaking to. So I, I'm the foolish man, and I say, you have faith. So what do you have? Faith. You have faith. I have works. See? So what do you have? Faith. What do I have? Are we all okay? We seem to be fine. You have faith, I have works. Okay, now, show me your faith without your works. Okay? You have faith, you can show me that faith. You don't have to have works to show me your faith. Just show it to me. We're all good. Uh, I will show you my faith by my works. I can apparently generate works with my faith. So see now, faith can exist alone. Works can exist alone. Works can generate faith. See how handy this is? This is like, Mix and match. Clothing. You can wear the suit without the coat. You can use the coat as a sport coat. 
You can wear them together as a suit, with or without a tie. Isn't this handy? Not only that, you believe there's one God. See that belief you have? And do good. And the demons believe the same thing, and they tremble. So see, you can have same faith and do totally opposite things. So how convenient is this? See how separate, mix and match? You can have faith. You can have works. You can have works that generate faith. You can have faith that does completely opposite things just depending on how you want it to go. Ain't it cool that they can be held completely independent of one another? And then he says, well, do you not know, foolish man, faith without works is dead? Abraham had his faith fulfilled when he took it into the marketplace and did something with it. That's how we all know his faith was alive. Because when you take the faith and you put works into it, that's when it comes alive and does something. You can have faith without doing anything, but why would you want to do that? And the point that started all this was chapter uh, 2, where it says... Sorry, chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Believe, yes, believe. But then put it into action. Why? Because that's what God has called us to do. And in fact, what that does is it redeems your soul from the power of sin by putting it into action. You're actually setting aside what he calls wickedness and overflow of evil, which Paul will call the flesh. It's for your own benefit. And it blesses the world too. So I think what's happening here is in Romans chapter 4 is Paul is taking the misapplication of James chapter 2 and redeeming it. Now, just to make a point, look in your Bible and notice that the quotation marks do not show up where they should which is, even the demons believe and tremble. The, the quotation marks in your translation will not be... Anybody have a translation where the quotation marks are after tremble? Anybody? James 2. James 2, yeah, James 2. Sorry, James 2, verse 20. Does anybody have a quotation mark after tremble in James 2, verse 20? I don't think anybody will. You'll have the quotation marks show up after... Uh, Let's see, works, you have faith and I have works. You'll have the quotation mark show up after uh, the second works. You have it show up all over the place, but you don't have it show up where it ought to show up, which is very fascinating. In my particular translation, the quotation marks show up after you have faith and I have works. So here is what the translator is saying is happening. The objector says, I'll be the objector again. You have faith. What do you have? I have works. What do I have? And now I'm finished. And James picks back up and says, You stupid objector, show me your faith without your works. What did I say I had as an objector? I said I had works. So you're saying, show me your faith without your works? What, what, kind, of, what kind of overthrowing smackdown is that? I didn't even say I had any faith. For heaven's sakes. I said I had works. Who won that argument? What kind of objection is you have faith and I have works? Well, you have faith and I have works. 
Who got obliterated by that argument? Okay? It doesn't even make any sense. But there's people that want the notion to be that you've got to prove you had faith by doing stuff. They want that to be the case, and so they put the quotation marks there. And you know whose camp they're in? The same camp that Paul is objecting to in the book of Romans. It is a human tendency to want to condemn other people in order to get them to behave. If we don't do that, the world's going to run amok. We can't let people sin like crazy. We've got to control them, don't we? How's it working out? How's it working out? You know, who in history are the worst offenders of abusing other people? Is it not those who get the most power over them and they're controlling them? But no, Paul says, hey guys, the grace of God is the real answer. Now, let's reemphasize. He smacked these guys down and he says their condemnation is just in 3 verse 8. Romans, back to Romans, back to Romans, thank you. And, and he says, why not say, let us do evil that good may come. We're slanderously reported and some affirm we say, their condemnation is just. So here these are, guys are coming, bringing condemnation so that they can control. And Paul says, you know what they're actually doing? They're heaping condemnation on themselves. But not from me. Verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. I'm sure glad I don't condemn others to control them. I'm sure glad I never make any rules for anyone and then say you got to, uh, you got to uh, be under these rules or you're really a bad person. Sure glad that's never been me. Well, no, Paul, Paul gets it completely here. Look, we all do this. We do it with our kids. We do it with our co-workers. We do it with our spouses. And when we do, we're heaping condemnation on ourselves. Because whose chair are we sitting in? We're sitting in God's chair. It's His job. Paul says, judge nothing before the time. I'm not aware of anything I've done that deserves condemnation, but you know how much that gets me off the hook? None. Because I don't get to make that call. God does. And when He does... He's going to do it with the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So now where's the focus? On others? I think I'll examine myself. So while this is human nature, and it's been going on forever and it's still going on today, what we're not to do is say, well, I'm going to make a rule for them. And I'm going to condemn them. And their rule is that they can't have their rules. Well, now I'm just doing the same thing. But what Paul says is, there's none righteous. This is 3.10. None who understands. None who seeks after God. All turned aside. Have together become unprofitable. None who does good. Not one, not even Paul, who says of himself... If anybody deserves to be condemned, it's me. I I persecuted the church and murdered people. 
Have you noticed how many murderers there are that wrote the big... Moses is a murderer. Paul is a murderer. And David's a murderer. I mean, just whole books written by murderers. Okay? So can you get all uppity? No. Well, we're, we're, this is the way we are. The throat's an open tomb. With their tongues, they practice deceit. The poison of asp is under their list. This is our condition. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Have you cursed other people? Have you been bitter to other people? Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are their ways. And the way of peace have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So what Paul is setting up here is the next installment of Smackdown. And the Smackdown now is not going to just be of these Jewish guys. It's going to be of all of us. Because we all have a big problem. And you know what all our fundamental problem is? Me. I've met the enemy, and it's me. And that's where we'll be heading next. We're going to learn we've all got a problem. And what we all need is to enter a mutual self-help program to overcome me. No, no, that doesn't work. What we need is a 12-step program because we all have a me addiction. And that's what Paul's going to walk us through. God, thank you for your word, for your amazing, penetrating truth. I pray that you'll help us see ourselves with reality, see others with reality. And the result will be that we will make our faith fulfilled and walk in it while relying on just you to bring righteousness. Help us relax in the wonderful security that your grace covers all sin, past, present, future, while being encouraged and empowered to walk in the newness of life and live this transformational life that you've given us and leave death and slavery behind. In Jesus' name, amen.